You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. The Gist is brought to you by The Rachel Maddow Show on MSNBC. Watch Rachel as she breaks down the big headlines for the local threads that tie them all together. It's The Rachel Maddow Show, covering America one story at a time. Weeknights at 9 Eastern, only on MSNBC. And by Citrix Go to Meeting. When meetings matter, millions choose Go to Meeting. Hold a meeting with anyone from the convenience of your computer, smartphone, or tablet. Try it free for 30 days by visiting gotomeeting.com and clicking the Try It Free button. That's gotomeeting.com. Try it free. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Tuesday, October 13th, 2015. From Slate, it's the gist. I'm Mike Pesca. Playboy, all dressed up, but no reason to exist. Playboy has announced that it will get out of the business of nudity. No nudity in Playboy magazine. I, I guess you could argue that they're zigging when everyone else zagged, always have. 62 years ago, just about everyone was clothed. So Playboy was naked. Now that society has disrobed, they've robed. I know what you're all asking, though. What does this mean for the overall supply of naked ladies in the world? The world naked lady supply. As you remember, in the 1950s, Playboy was the main source of naked ladies. Before Playboy, you had to go to Goya, you had to go to Degas. But then we got Playboy. Playboy stood atop one of the world's richest supplies of naked lady reserves. That Then a funny thing happened. When they demonstrated the profitability of this vast reserve of naked ladies, other naked ladies were discovered everywhere. It's like shale and fracking. The calculus changed. It turns out all these other places were sitting atop vast naked lady reserves. There was a glut in the market and Playboy never recovered. In fact, the U.S. Naked Lady Information Administration estimates that to put it in perspective where Playboy is now, that Playboy pulling out of the naked lady business is the equivalent of Vermont halting all extraction of crude oil or similarly, Venezuela no longer extracting any maple syrup. Similar impact. There is one place where it will be felt. A great sigh of relief on behalf of all those naked ladies who wanted to appear in Playboy, but just hated long walks on the beach, right? Amber from Marina Del Rey hates long walks on the beach and really has no use for guys with a good sense of humor. She likes short drives on asphalt and men who are fairly to the point, or even with a flat affect. She likes to know that her men aren't being sarcastic when they say, uh, you're running out of road up ahead, Amber. Now Amber can be proudly naked and not have to pretend to like long walks on the beach. And you can find information about that on Playboy.com, the one page on the internet without naked ladies. Well, also, CaracasMapleSyrup.ve. On the show today, I will spiel a little bit because you miss the spiels. It's the return of talk show karaoke. But first, I've just returned from a political convention in L.A. It's called Politicon. It's seeking to become to politics what Comic-Con is to comics and sci-fi. In fact, there was a guy at Politicon who had a really, really spot-on and scary-looking Newt Gingrich outfit. Oh, wait, it actually was Newt Gingrich. But I'm going to play you a panel that I moderated. It was a summit between two men at the nadir of the pinnacle. Let me explain. In politics, 
the bag man or the body man is the guy who attends to the candidate's every personal need, hand sanitizer, scheduling, how to work that danged Blackberry. And here now a conversation, a, a panel where I was in between a real life and a delightfully fictional body man. Every weeknight, MSNBC's Rachel Maddow breaks down the big headlines for the local threads that tie them all together. Sure, there's a lot of searching and it takes a lot of work, but even in a country this big, there are no local stories. Your life and what you see from your front porch is directly connected to the national news. Watch Rachel as she connects the dots and covers America's news one story at a time. It's the Rachel Maddow Show, weeknights at 9 Eastern, only on MSNBC. John Stuart Mill once said that the individual is sovereign over himself, over his own mind, and his own body. But George Michael said, I know not everybody has got a body like you. Uh. Uh. That was in the lyrics of Rap Genius. Uh. Today we speak of the body man, oh, the body man, also known as a bag man, a political institution that melds the personal and the political, and in the case of Tony Hale's performance, that space where creepy and caring meet. So, let me introduce to you Tony Hale, who is the winner of two Emmys, a nominee for three Emmys. It would have been weird if those numbers were reversed. The Emmys were won for his role as Gary Walsh, assistant amanuensis, valet, and conscience of Selena Meyer, the titular character, and in recent seasons, the sir titular character in the TV show Veep. Sir, of course, French for over. Here is Tony Hale. <laughs> Thanks for coming up, guys. And here, next, now starting for your Duke Blue Devils, is a phrase Reggie Love barely heard because he only started four games in college, but... With the football team, the guy was a star for Duke. He had a few tryouts in the NFL and then got, I'm going to say, what was an even better job, better job than leading the uh, Pickard's charge that is kickoff coverage in the NFL and hurting his brain. He became President Barack Obama's body man, which means he was his extra set of hands, his basketball teammate. We'll ask him if he was ever a mentee. We'll find out. Reggie Love. Yeah. But I started a lot of football games. Like I know, he was great. I read that he was uh, Duke's leading receiver his senior season, but then I read it was 27 receptions, so I'm going to guess it was a run-first offense. Run-first option. <laughs> run-first offense. Freshman sports. quarterback. <laughs> sports. <laughs> What's happening? More sports. So here to break down the double-A gap blitz is Tony Hell. Have you guys... Uh, What's football? <laughs> have you guys met or compared notes? Is that part of your process? No. To fun no. I'm sorry, we have met. This is our second time meeting. We met... Uh, three years ago, I think, yeah. at the, the screening of Veep. Yeah. When I, I'd spent some time with the, a couple of the creators, Armand and some of the guys. Mm -hmm. uh, so did he, uh, Armando Iannucci? I was very scared to meet you, actually. <laughs> the bald head. I, no, no. <laughs> I was, because Gary was, is the exact opposite of what he has done. And I was like, oh, God, how is he going to take this? But you were very kind. I will say that you you put a very good spin on it, and you give the job a lot of humor because there are a lot of there are a lot of times where 
you know, you have to do some stuff that's not. It never, when I did some of those things, it never felt as funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll ask you each, Reggie, were you aware of how aware, how, what do you think of the various portrayals of that position? There was a character on the West Wing. You know, sometimes you see the, uh, the personal bro that the uh, president has. So when you saw the media representation of it, what do you think of it? I started working for the president when he, he was a junior senator from Illinois, and no one really could knew his name and there wasn't secret service and there wasn't presidential valets and to be totally honest yeah i i didn't i, I remember i saw this one episode where you, you go to get a, a some tea and lemon and i remember being in like iowa on a bus at about to start an event and the, and the candidate says this is like my third event my throat's like gone i need some tea with some with some ginger root I, I was like 22. I was like, I don't even know what ginger root is. <laughs> and I, I like borrow somebody's car to like drive to a, a Hy-Vee grocery store. And it, that was in 2007. I mean, now when, when you work in the White House, there's so many people. And you, know, yeah. I, yeah. and you handled it well. Gary would have fallen apart in a corner and solid <laughs> crying. <laughs> Rocking in a corner. <laughs> so the creator of Veep, uh, Armando Iannucci, am I saying that right? Yeah, yeah, Armando Yanucci. Armando Yanucci. Yeah. He, from what I've read, heard stories about the the older body men, not the twenty two year olds, the guys who were maybe pushing forty, who were still in the job. So that at least told me that he took some of the nonfiction and worked it into his fiction. But what about you? What's your process? Do you like to? Did you try to figure out what the the real guy in that job did, or does that get in the way of what you wanted to create? Chris? Uh, yeah, well, we well, before we shot the pilot, we were able to go to um, D.C. and kind of meet some people that had played these roles. And I was able to ask questions. And one guy I met <clears throat> had been the body man to a, to a representative. And he was saying that he had no life for two or three years of, of his life. He had no social life. He never saw his family. And then he went on to do other stuff. And... <laughs> The, the twist of this is Gary has never gone on to do other stuff. <laughs> you know, he is in his 40s, and he's very happily at the side of Selena Meyer. He, he has no identity outside of Selena Meyer. I mean, if she goes to work at Target after this, he's going to be carrying her purse. <laughs> you know, so he just, he, they, he kind of took that and then went to the extreme with it. I mean, I think Gary thinks of Selena as an extension. It the phrase, you complete me, doesn't even go far enough oh, with how no. Gary thinks of Selena. <laughs> yeah. Selena thinks of Gary like I think of my elbow. Like, unless it hurts, unless there's a problem, I don't yeah. even think of it. Well, Selena doesn't even know Gary's last name, I yeah. don't think. <laughs> Literally. And in Gary's world, they're going to be married one day. And they will. <laughs> he found out that uh, Gary's parents weren't dead. I think, I think everyone found out in that one episode I where know. she took... It was not ginger, it was St. John's wort. Yeah, yeah. yeah. There was an episode where um, he accidentally gave her too much St. John's wort, and she got really loopy and was very kind and very sweet and said that they were going to go to this, his parents' 40th anniversary, yeah. and they were going to dance and all this kind of stuff. And that was Gary's, that was the best day of his life. <laughs> and then she crashed from the St. John's wart and thought he was ridiculous. Yeah. And so he wept in a corner. Are you, the, are you one of these kind of actors who creates a backstory for the character? And then when, I don't, was that in uh, season four? And then did they... So then they tell you what the backstory is, and you know, was that like, wait, that wasn't the weird backstory I invented? Uh, no, I kind of let the. It's it's a really cool process where they give us, <clears throat> they give us all this rehearsal time where we can kind of improv. They give us an awesome framework of a script, 
and then we can kind of play and improv and come up with bits. And a lot of the you, a lot of the character development and, and and what's happening comes out of that. And then when we're even on the day, you know, I'll throw in, you know, I went to school in Birmingham, Alabama, so I'll I'll throw in Gary's from Birmingham, you know, and so we can kind of add those little bits into it. So Reggie, I'm going to guess that uh, Barack Obama was either more interested in your personal life, or at least you'll say he was, so as not to burn him. <laughs> yeah, that, you know, that's a, a funny question. And so I wrote this book, and you know, the biggest portion of the book, everyone is it's just the, the candidate walked in to your room, and there was a girl in your room. And I was like, yes. But he would always say, I was kind of an extension to sort of real life because, you know, he couldn't go out and play blackjack until three o'clock in the morning and then stop at the Cheetah Club on the way home. Like he kind of, <laughs> you know, he had to sort of be presidential all the time. I definitely think uh, being a college athlete, I think my personal life was probably a little more interesting uh, than being the personal life to the president because you have a little more downtime. So you were like, you're like, oh my God, you're the, you're the most important man in the free world. And he was like, oh my God, you get to go out and have a drink. Yeah. <laughs> I get to vicariously live through you. He doesn't carry a wallet. He doesn't carry keys. What else doesn't he do that we don't even think? He does carry cash because uh-huh. he, 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 likes to, he likes to play little he likes to play some cards and he, he, and he will take your money and l- remind you <laughs> often about how much money he's taken from you. Uh. <laughs> so how much can you zazz him back? I mean, you could kill him in basketball, right? If you guys played one on one, you could beat him consistently. One, yeah, I mean he, oh. <laughs> so he, he, he said this very funny phrase early on, I, t- I take the job and I don't really know what a body guy is. I don't, I've never worked on a presidential campaign and I'm kind of, you know, being like, you're late, you're really late, there are people waiting. And, you know, he kind of says to me, he says, look, you know, Reggie, you need to, you need to cool out. Uh, he said, he said, just to be clear, he said, I'm running for president. He said, you're closer to my daughter's age than you are mine. And so I also remind him that when he asked me if he wants to play basketball, I'm like, I'm like, you know that I'm closer to your daughter's age. <laughs> Because I can still get up and down pretty quick. <laughs> now, did you realize when you said that you've lapsed into a Barackian cadence? Uh, yes. Did you notice that? Was that conscious or subconscious? I, 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 didn't, so I didn't see that. No, I didn't yeah, know I did that. It's true. That's true. <laughs> see, I think, I mean, knowing really successful politicians, even if you hate them, they have great interpersonal skills. I mean, I don't know if George W. Bush is popular in this room, but he has great interpersonal skills. In fact, those are maybe his best skills. He's really uh, funny. He's very I mean, funny. he's really funny. People tell, you know, so so Bill Clinton, they, they say that when you're with him, you feel like you're the only person in the world. And sure, some of that is because of the office, but it's these incredible interpersonal skills. Now on the show for comic purposes, Selena is not really so great at that. She's an awful person. (laughs) (laughs) She should never be near the White House. (laughs) But she, she really seems not only not to care about other people, but it's apparent she doesn't care. So you have to have one of those two things, actually, to be a real-life uh, successful politician, I think. Yeah. And she lacks them. No, Trump's <laughs> doing pretty well in the polls. Yeah? <laughs> uh, yeah. But that, what's so, what I, one of the huge things that I love about the show is it really shows the division between the public persona and the private persona. 
and she can put it on when she needs to put it on. Yes. And unfortunately, and that, and that can be spinned. Even if she does something wrong, somebody can spin it like crazy and then it comes out, it can come out shining like gold. And you're like, how did that happen? But then there's the private persona where you see the human, the humanity of it. And I mean, I, even though we are a satire and like to the extreme, that's what I appreciate about this show. I appreciate the fact that it's not you, all you hear is the sound bite sometimes, but there's a human being behind it. And we both can agree with that. Like these are human beings that this, they're in pressure cookers of anxiety, massive decisions. And you know, behind the scenes that they have to get anxious and, and vent and all that kind of stuff. And we take it to the extreme comedically, but you know, you saw humanity too a lot, I'm sure. Does, does being next to Barack Obama, has that taught you anything about handling pressure? Yeah, I think, I, I actually think that's one of his best qualities. I think he is very good at processing information. Uh, you, you never get one of these left, way left answers or he gets so caught up in something that he gives a response that he's like, oh, wait, let, let me take that back. He, and I think he just does a very good job of being sort of measured and understanding uh, as many sides to, a, to, to complex issues as there are and as someone who's from the South, you know, I had a very limited perspective when I grew up, and that's probably the thing that he's taught me the most is that, you know, when you're dealing with people, even if they look different than you or sound different than you or they're a different political party, everyone's sort of, you know, everyone's trying to sort of get to the same place. You just have to understand how they envision getting there. So that's a good piece of advice. Is there any, have you changed your outlook or way of dealing with the world, pressure situations or anything else by being so close to uh, Barack Obama? Probably the biggest piece of advice he gave me, and I follow this to date, it was in 2009, it was January, it was the day after the inauguration, and we're in the White House. My, you know, my mom, and so in college basketball and, and playing sports, there's always this thing about tickets, like who's getting tickets? And then it's like cousin and nephew and niece and woman at the hair salon. And, like, and so for the inauguration, I said, you know, mom, I have, uh, I've got, I've got, 10 tickets total. That's like it. And like somehow the invite list is like 20 people. And I go, Ma, like, you know that that's not 10. And we get into a little bit of, a, we're in a little bit of a fight. And so the day after the inauguration, I'm in, uh, sitting in my office outside of the Oval Office and, you know, the president comes in, he goes, you know, I didn't see uh, Mr. and Mrs. Love yesterday. I said, are they, he said, are they here? And I said, yeah, they're here. And I'm, and I'm annoyed. And I'm like, you know, we're in a fight. And he goes, well, you know, I'd like for you to, to have your mom and your dad come by the Oval Office so I can say hi to him. And I said, I was like, I don't really want to deal with them right now. My mom's driving me crazy. <laughs> and he goes, well, you know, look, I'm the leader of the free world. <laughs> and I would like to see your parents. Uh, so I have them come in and they leave. And he kind of looks at me and he goes, was that so hard? And I go, you know, no, it wasn't. He says, you know, you never know how long your parents are going to be here. So, you know, you should take every day and every moment to always appreciate them. And so, you know, and I felt like kind of like a butthole and I, and at the point in time. But now that's one of my, that's the thing that I've done. So now it's like I write notes and I like call every other day and just sort of check it, you know, because, you know, he lost his mother at a young age. And, and that's not necessarily learned from being president. But, you know, I think that's one of the things I've taken with me. Do you think he ever... Selena has never given me a piece of advice <laughs> no. that I followed. <laughs> <laughs> right. 
wait, your parents aren't dead? That inconveniences me. <laughs> do you think uh, Do you think President Obama at times thought of you as a younger brother, a son, family? So during the presidential campaign in 2008, it was the longest campaign in to date in the history of presidential campaigns. And we literally spent six and a half days together every day for two years. So I think initially I was probably a nuisance yeah. and like kind of the, the little brother that's like bothering him all the time. But I think it's really more like, I think we both kind of have some advanced form of Stockholm syndrome yeah. where like, you know, you go through this like really hard experience. So you just like, you kind of are bonded uh, at, at the hip a little bit. Uh, and I think definitely more of a sort of like a little brother son he never had kind of deal. He had a sister and uh, he doesn't have a son. So I could see that working out. Now, as I was doing some research into the uh, institution of the body man, I covered the 2004 campaign. There was this huge guy named Marvin, Marvin Nicholson. That's you my know guy. Him? Yeah. Love Marvin. He's a 6'8 guy. Because, Canadian, half Canadian. Yeah. <laughs> Shh, don't tell anyone. Because I guess Kerry needed someone a little taller than himself. And uh, he would just bro around with Kerry. And now the stat is Marv has actually played more rounds of golf with Obama than anyone else on earth. And the day that we killed, we, I, I was involved, killed Bin Laden. Marv was the guy who, uh, played cards with Obama. Anyway, so Marv was Kerry's body man. Huma Abedin, who is in the news a lot and uh, is married to Anthony Weiner, she was essentially played the same role with Hillary Clinton. You guys are different gender. I don't know if you knew that. But does that exist? Does a female candidate ever have a male bag man or body man in real life Washington? Or a male candidate have a female I've seen male, I female. You're talking about us being different. I, I didn't know where you're going. You and Selena. When I say you, I always mean your character and Selena. It's like, ah, uh, this took a turn. Yeah. Got it. I'm on it. I, I've I've not seen assistant to female principal. <laughs> you're have. missing out. <laughs> but I, you, you see female to male often. Mm. Yeah. Uh huh. It's not it's not unusual. So how does that dynamic, that's interesting. I, it doesn't also surprise me just because of, you know, power dynamics. So why did he want to cast you as a male character? And what do you think we the viewer get out of that? A lot, by the way. Even hearing you and your relationship with Obama, I'm just like, wow, that is so not me and Selena. <laughs> um, um, the one thing that I love about... Gary and Selena is that Gary is, 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 is taller than Selena, but he would do anything if somebody would just cut six inches off the bottom of his body because he would just love to be under her. He would just love to always be able to look up to her. So if you've noticed, his, his posture is always really bad because he's just trying so hard to get on her level. So I think he kind of, it, it just helps constantly mask, just, just trying to get down to her. You are the, I think the one on the show who embodies the corporeal. You have more physical things to do on the show than anyone else. And some, I mean, it's all great actors. And there are some of uh, the staff members, the chief of staff who's played by Kevin Dunn. Great line reads, hysterical, has the same posture almost all the time. It's kind of this like clenched up ball yeah, because yeah, he's, yeah. he's, in, you could you could just see his gut churning, but you bring all these physical things that I think is such a gift for the show, and you could see how much the show loves turning to you when you interact with her physically. It's beyond how uh, beyond the line readings. 
it's something that you as an actor bring to the job that can't be on a script, and I'm constantly blown away with it. Well, thanks for saying that. I, 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 selfishly, I have to say that since my character can't ever say anything, uh, he can't, you know, he has, he can't voice his opinion rarely. He can't, he can't have an opinion about something. Um, unlike with you and Obama, I'm, you, you were able to have back and forth. She never, she never wants to hear anything that comes out of my mouth. <laughs> so uh, it's all, you have to, it's all like in the back just going, you know, or just kind of <laughs> frustrated and trying to give nonverbal it's fun to express myself that way. I and think. I noticed that they frame... And he does it, he fails miserably. <laughs> but I noticed they even frame shots where every other show would be a reaction shot to the main character we want to see, Julia Louis-Dreyfus. But there you are in the background doing a take on her expression. Just it's, sad. it's phenomenal, though. Well, but, and I think Gary, man, he just... Worked, I mean, what she has asked him... To, she's asked him to break up with boyfriends for her. She's asked him to dig through her trash to find these you know, unmentionables, whatever they were. She he would do anything for her. And I think he just really goes home and just has, just worships her. So he knows yes. everything about her. So when he, when he's ready for the day, he knows how she's going to react. Somehow. But don't you think that if it weren't for Gary, we wouldn't even like Selena as much. She's horrible to him, but I think you, I mean, the word pathetic has a negative connotation, but that's what it is. It's the only place. It's pretty spot on. Yeah. But it's the only place you see the pathos of the character. Yeah, like the I, there, there was place. a scene last season where Gary made a, a huge mistake. Uh, he was given some freedom and he overspent <laughs> the budget because he thought he was the first lady. <laughs> and uh, he stepped into that role. <laughs> and um, so he just kind of went crazy on the credit card. She confronted him and was about to fire him. And he apologized and tried to explain this is because I love you, whatever. And she said to him, you're a middle-aged man who sanitizes my tweezers. Okay. <laughs> that, he had never, that had never crossed his mind that she saw him like that. Because in his, I mean, she just, th he thinks that she can't live without him. So that was a turning point. But then you saw that Gary knew some information about her. So he, she keeps him around because Gary knows something about her. That was yeah. the scene you nominated for the Emmy, or that was oh, you yeah. submitted yeah, for the yeah. Emmy. <laughs> that that scene, the yes. And how the Emmy works is they just watch a scene. They, just <laughs> I don't know what they do. I think they, they ask what episode yeah. you would like to submit. And I I, I loved I, you know I loved that episode because the time they give you to find that chemistry and to find the rhythm of that scene. Not a lot of shows do that. They just you kind of show up and shoot. They give you that time to really f make that work, and I had we had such a blast finding that. So that's why. Yeah, and it stands up on its own, and you know, dramatically, there are these reversals in that scene. Yeah, right? and and just the power dynamic. I also switches. learned so much. I mean, I learned like, wow, this is a reason why she she has to have him around because there's no reason why she wouldn't have fired him that day. There's been a lot of reasons why she wouldn't have fired him. <laughs> so if my theory is that. Uh, Gary humanizes Selena. I think you humanized Barack Obama because you're mm -hmm. often seen playing basketball with him, doing sporting things with him, blowing around with him. And you know, even people that hate Barack Obama, one of the and you know this, people hate him. There are a couple <laughs> people. They're wandering around in some of the halls out there. But <laughs> but sports is a way to communicate. He knows he can even talk to the people who, maybe not the people who have a total closed mind, but sports is a currency and he uses sports really well. And you kind of embodied that aspect for him. 
I was having breakfast today with a guy who I played college football with, and he made this comment, and I think the president sort of does this really well, is that through sports, you can basically connect with anyone. Everyone's got a team. They've got some a city that they root for or a country or, or whatever, and I think he does a, a good job of – being able to connect with people through through that mechanism, and I, and I think it makes him, it does make him a little, it does humanize him. Even though you, you do kind of read these stories that, oh, well, you know, the president, he's like aloof or yeah. whatever, and I, I'm always confused by it because they say he doesn't, like, invite, like, Boehner over to, like, watch basketball games, and it's like, well, would you invite Boehner over to watch a <laughs> basketball game? It's like... <laughs> The, the principle behind it just is sort of off. But I, to, to, to your point and to Selena and Gary, I think there is this element of, you know, when you're president, you kind of feel like there's nothing you can't handle because you are the leader of the free world. But in actuality, there's a lot of work and a lot of effort that goes into having the principal be prepared to look as presidential or as stately as they actually do. And I remember one of the days I had to go – to a walkthrough for like a state arrival. And he goes, what do you mean? You, there's a walkthrough for that? And I was like, yeah, you know, like you just don't show up and everything's not, everything's not perfect when you show up. You know, like a lot of people spend hours, he days even know. planning these things in advance. Yeah. There's a walkthrough. Yeah, multiple walkthroughs. Do you want to come? I'm just laughing at the image of Gary trying to connect with Selena through sports. Yeah. <laughs> I was just looking at a ball. Mm. At this point, we can take uh, some questions from the audience if we have. You guys are the audience. There, there's a mic coming around. Go right ahead. For Reggie, I was just wondering if uh, when the president has a really bad day and everything's going wrong, if he ever just yeah. kind of dumped it on, dumps on you unfairly. Unfairly. So was it fair? I mean, <laughs> right. So because I'm like the typically like the closest person to him, the first reaction that he usually has, I get that. Yeah, I never take it personal, right? It's like something was wrong. And, you know, I think it's a guy who's the leader of the free world. The people that work for him should get things right. And I also think that, you know, as a, as a member of the team, I think I'm also accountable for things when they don't necessarily go right. But I think there definitely have been times where he's, like, said things to me and he's upset about them, and I had, like, nothing to do with it whatsoever. <laughs> uh, you know, and I would just be like, yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, you know, <laughs> what do you – Yep. You're like, well, I mean, look, I wasn't the one who came out for gay marriage. I meet the press. That was Biden. <laughs> Another question. Tony, you uh, mentioned the cussing in the show, and I think that's one of the funniest things about creative the show. Not cussing. Just, that's a, not just the quantity, but, but how creative the writing and the delivery of the cussing is. So my question actually is for Reggie. Uh, how realistic is that? The swearing? Yeah. Oh, yeah, there's a lot of swearing. <laughs> a lot of swearing. From, from the top? Yeah, I mean, people use swear words in the, in the White House, I, appropriately, too. Uh, it's funny, um, one trip, he went to Detroit, and the president saw this little, you know the Staples button, and it's like the easy button? And someone had this button that said, bull, on the button. And when you press the button, there would be a voice, that, there were, a voice would come out, and it would say, bull, shit <laughs> in these like creative funny ways and so uh he said 
He says, I need one of those. <laughs> so I, I think he ha- he has one like in his drawer. I don't know how often he uses it anymore, but it's like. <laughs> Reggie Love, Tony Hale, thank you guys very much. Thank you guys. That was fun. Thanks, guys. Think about the time, think about the money, think about the hassle it takes to hold a meeting. Are you thinking about it? Are you thinking about it long and hard? Boom, you just missed out on a meeting. I suggest Citrix GoToMeeting. It's the smarter way to meet. It makes it easy to meet with your team whenever you need to, wherever you need to, because with GoToMeeting, you can meet from any computer, tablet, or smartphone without travel expenses, without traffic. Oh, will the Uber pick me up? Oh, should I get a taxi? Oh, can I just take a train? Oh, wait, in this metro system, you insert the card, but then you gotta pick it? I didn't know that. This has all happened to me within the last week. Think about GoToMeeting. Click a link. You don't have to sign up. There are no speed bumps. You turn on your webcam with HD quality. It's like being in the room with the other people. Because with GoToMeeting, everyone sees what you're seeing. Everyone's on the same page. I want you to sign up for GoToMeeting today. Try it free for 30 days. You got nothing to lose. Visit GoToMeeting.com and click the Try It Free button. If you do it now, you can have your first meeting up and running in minutes. That's GoToMeeting.com for your free 30-day trial. And now the spiel crossfire. I got to play a little talk show karaoke. Haven't done it in a long time. The show is Face the Nation. The guest is Ben Dominic. He is the publisher of The Federalist. So he posed this hypothetical question to the other guest, Ruth Marcus. And Ruth Marcus was arguing that Ben Carson was off base to say we need guns in case people stop liking their elected leaders. So we'll start a little bit back in the conversation. Then you'll hear what Dominic says. I thought Ben Carson is a fascinating candidate because his demeanor is, seems so reasonable. He's a physician. We respect but that. Ruth, that's what, what comes the found, out but of that's his what the mouth. Let me just finish. Said about let me, guns. Wait, wait, wait. But what, what comes what out of his guns. mouth about guns and about other things is remarkably radical. Sam Adams talked about the ability of Americans to defend themselves when their when their government was dominated by vain and aspiring men. How is that any different? The well, difference is, is right now we have a whole Republican Party that is spending a lot of money and a lot of time convincing the American public that, that this government is dominating them. So what he's basically doing is putting a tar- That last voice you heard is Ron Fournier, and he took the idea of what's the difference, and he wanted to say what he wanted to say, which is about Republicans and spending. No, no. That is not the difference between what Sam Adams said in 1780 and what Ben Carson is saying now. Cue me back up, Andrea. Sam Adams talked about the ability of Americans to defend themselves when their, when their government was dominated by vain and aspiring men. How is that any different? Okay, here's how that's different. Well, the vain men that Sam Adams was talking about were kings. Also, the guns Sam Adams was talking about were muskets. Also, at that point, we had just invented the concept of a modern democracy, the Continental Congress, the Articles of Confederation. So we're just figuring out what it meant to change government at the ballot box. Also, there is nothing in that letter about guns. I read the letter. Okay, this is the part of talk show karaoke that's wish fulfillment. But imagine you had the letter right there and you're waving it around like the parchment. If ever the time should come when vain and aspiring men shall possess the highest seats in government, our country will stand in need of its experienced patriots to prevent its ruins. Says nothing about guns. Can be interpreted as a raging endorsement of the peaceful transfer of power. In fact, that's what Adams was thinking about. That's what he was writing about. Ways to encode that idea into the law. That's why there was a constitution a year after Adams wrote that letter. 
Our founding fathers literally were revolutionaries. They wouldn't be our founding fathers if they didn't believe in overthrowing the government, that government being the king, by force, that force being muskets and bayonets. Also, some really good leeches, the only way to cure you of the muskets and bayonets. To look at everything a founding father said that was pro-revolutionary and to think that's an endorsement of keeping an armory in our basements that would have won the Battle of Ticonderoga is insane. This is 2015. We register our dissatisfaction in low approval ratings, not low riflery ranges. Here's a fact. The American Revolution lasted eight years and eight months. And during those eight years and eight months, 6,824 fighters on the colonial side were killed in battle. It's a little less than 800 a year. In the USA now, which I need to remind you, there is no war going on within the United States. There is no war trying to overthrow a king, no army regiments in the streets. That's a little less than 800 a year. That many people that took a year, on average a year, during the Revolutionary War, an actual war, shooting war, right here in America, that many people are killed every 10 days in the United States of America. In two and a half months, guns wipe out more Americans than every colonial, every would-be American who fought for our freedom. If you want to quote Sam Adams, if you want to tell me that a Sam Adams white ale pairs well with a goat cheese fondue, that is relevant to 2015. That I will accept. But to use his 1780 letter to a friend about vigilance in the face of poor governance as justification for maintaining an arsenal in every cul-de-sac, what are you, drunk? And that's it for today's show. Just producer Andrea Salenzi found out that Soldier of Fortune magazine will no longer feature stories of soldiers and will no longer be co-published by Fortune. Executive producer Andy Bowers is distressed to learn that Cat Fancy will mostly feature woodchucks. When they do picture cats, the cats will be rough-hewn and earthy, decidedly unfancy. The gist, hereby canceling our subscription to Highlights for Children given their recent announcement that they will mostly feature the catastrophic blunders of people 18 and over. Goofus. I rate that a goofus. Boom, Peru, de Peru, du Peru. And thanks for listening. <laughs>